Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Loving Hope. In a few minutes, I'll get to my interview with Brandon Garrett about his book, End of Its Rope, How Killing the Death Penalty Can Revive Criminal Justice. But first, the news. Not much to report here, except that I did complete my recap of Orange is the New Black, Season 6, Episode 10. If you haven't followed this series, I've written a recap of every episode from Season 1 through the 10th episode of Season 6, which I think is 74 episodes, from the perspective of a formerly incarcerated person. As always, I'll include the links in my show notes if you want to check it out. Okay, let's get to my interview with Brandon L. Garrett. Brandon L. Garrett is the inaugural L. Neal Williams Jr. Professor of Law at Duke University. A leading scholar of criminal justice outcomes, evidence, and constitutional rights, Garrett previously was the White Burkett Miller Professor of Law and Public Affairs and Justice Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. He is the author of The Death Penalty, Concepts and Insights, Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations, Federal Habeas Corpus, Executive Detention and Post-Conviction Litigation, and Convicting the Innocent, Where Criminal Prosecutions Go Wrong, and also of the book we're going to be talking about today, End of Its Rope, How Killing the Death Penalty Can Revive Criminal Justice. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Brandon. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. So I always start by trying to fly, flesh out people's bios a little bit. How did you find yourself studying law, and how did you end up concerned with these particular areas of law after you finished your studies? Well, I, I started working with people that were criminal justice involved, I guess is the way to put it, um, in college. And then after college, I was doing volunteer work at a homeless shelter, and people just to help with food and just everyday tasks around the shelter and everyone was getting arrested for all kinds of quality of life offenses. So I, I hadn't really thought about law school, but I figured I should learn a little bit more about what defense type work is like. And I volunteered at a public defender and was just interviewing people into the jail and hearing what it was like, mostly people arrested over the week. And so after, after college, I, I moved to New York city and started doing work with a place called the Urban Justice Center, and I was doing a lot of welfare-related work with homeless people, uh, trying to challenge getting their food stamps, their benefits cut off. I was doing eviction prevention work, and a, a common denominator in the work I was doing was people would be behind on rent because someone, a wage earner in the family, got arrested. Or the most people I was working with, you know, they, they, they're getting their benefits cut off because they got arrested, so they missed their required meeting with their welfare casework. And so the more and more I decided to go to law school, I thought I wanted to focus on the criminal justice system. And can affect change to make it a more humane, sensible system. And how did you end up in particular working? It seems like you do a lot of work with the death penalty. You know, early on in law school, I, I worked with a professor at Columbia named James Liebman. He did a ton of death, death penalty work before he became a professor. I was uh, helping him with a habeas petition for a death row client. I had, you know, his signed confession or original forensics report sitting in a big cardboard box in my, in my dorm room in law school. It was exciting to my hands dirty working on a real case. Uh, he was right in the middle of uh, Jeff Fagan and Valerie West, a big, big empirical study that became known as the broken system study, documenting error rates and reversal rates in death penalty cases. So as a, as a student in law school, I got, I got exposed to how you can do large-scale, complicated, interdisciplinary empirical projects that can help the system better. And that was it was, it was a big death penalty project. So that was that was my early exposure to what casework and also research was like. So this book is uh, largely concerned with the death penalty and eventually criminal justice reform. Uh, we should probably start where you start. The use of the death penalty is on the decline in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah. So when, you know, when I was in, a law, in law school in the late 90s and I was helping my, my professor work on this broken system study, you know, death sentences were skyrocketing and they had gone up and up and up uh, since the 1970s. And there was no particular end to that in sight. People were talking about how it's sort of like a self-reinforcing system. Prosecutors get brownie points with their voters by saying we're tough on crime. And, you know, even if the death sentences all get reversed later and very few people are ever executed, you still get those points by, by running as tough on crime and seeking the death penalty whenever you can. 
And maybe it's a few counties and in a few states that's really driving it. But but those tough on crime prosecutors that were hard charging about the death penalty, they didn't have to pay for the costs. They didn't see the costs. And uh, and it was really helpful to advance their careers. Um, but it turns out, and I didn't know it, and, and no one else is really saying this at the time either, that right around that time, 1999, 2000, the bottom fell out of the American death penalty. Every year since then, death sentences have declined, declined, and declined. No one predicted it. No one called it. Uh, but it's it's been building in momentum ever since. And today we have death sentences that are just a fraction of what they were in the mid-1990s. So I, w- I wanted to write, write this book to figure out, well, why, why did that happen? Why did that happen in the United States, one of the top death sentencing in the world? So we are oddly enough recording this on the same day that this year's Uniform Crime Report was released. In that spirit, can you talk a bit about the demography around these declines? You go through that quite a bit in the book. Yeah, so... Another big change in the 90s was that homicide rates started to go down, as well as crime rates generally. Uh, on the flip side, when, when death sentencing came roaring back in the 70s, it was in part because there was a massive crime wave, not just murders, but all types of crime in the late 1960s. And that ushered in the, t- the tough on crime era, it ushered in mass incarceration, and all sorts of changes in the politicization of crime. Um, no one knows exactly why crime shot up during that time period. And no one knows why it all came crashing down in the 90s. But one of the things I, I wanted to study was, you know, did the decline in murders explain why death sentencing begins this freefall? Uh, so when the death penalty was being used with impunity, you trace it to a combination, as you just mentioned, of tough on crime attitudes and problems with representation and prosecution. On the one hand, we had a sort of tough on crime prosecutors, but on the other side, we had underpaid underfunded, and often unqualified defense attorneys. Can you speak to this history? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the 1990s and a lot of the main death penalty states, the trials were really short. If you were on the jury, um, you didn't really hear any particular reason not to sentence someone to death, typically. The crimes were often pretty horrific in terms of their facts. And the other side of the story just didn't exist. You didn't hear whether the person was, was mentally ill or disabled. You didn't hear about whether they had a brutal childhood. You didn't hear about whether they were serious substance abusers. All you heard about was, you know, the knife wounds, the bullet wound, uh, what, what was done to the victim's body. And uh, and so there was no reason not to think that the person in front of you wasn't the worst of the worst murderer, the type that that should be, should be executed so that there's no chance they'd ever walk the streets again. Once you saw lawyers start to present the other side of the story, it really changed. And now all of a sudden you have jurors turning away from the death penalty in states like Texas and states like you know, my, my until recently home state of Virginia, there hasn't been a death sentence since 2011, which is just shocking. You know, Virginia used to be right, right up there with Oklahoma and Texas in terms of the number of death sentences and execution. And now it's been more than seven years, no death sentences at all. And when prosecutors have tried, they haven't gotten the sentences because jurors hear the other side of the story. And that's that's, I think, a remarkable story that even murderers can be humanized at a criminal trial. You think these would be the, like the least sympathetic criminal defendants imaginable, and that's that hasn't. So a lot of the, we'll get back to prosecutors in a second, but a lot of the recent critical discussions of the death penalty seem to be mainly concerned with five problems. Let's kind of go through those real quick. The overarching concern. The first one seems to be innocence. I think anyone would agree that innocent people probably, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen in our system is that an innocent person is executed. But we have executed innocent people, correct? Well, we'll never know for sure. Uh, you know, we normally don't do DNA testing, for example, and can't do it after someone's executed. They normally destroy all the evidence. There's very strong evidence uh, about m- more than one person who was executed being potentially innocent, but we'll, we'll never know for sure. I suspect that many innocent people have been executed, including because some of the exonerations that we have had, people who we do know were innocent, who are walked off of death row, some of those people came within hours, days of being executed. It was just sheer luck that they happened to later get a DNA test to, to exonerate them. And we'll, ne- we'll never know uh, if or how many innocent people have been in this country. But we do know that a lot of people who were scheduled or at least sentenced to death ended up being innocent. Absolutely. There have been there are death row exonerees exonerated through stone cold DNA evidence. Um, many more exonerees off a of death row uh, where other evidence came to light, including confessions of other people and strong evidence that someone else had done it all along. And the other important thing to note is that 
for just unknown hundreds and hundreds of people who've been executed. Maybe there's no DNA test to do now. There's no witness who came to light who's clearly the culprit. But they're convicted based on, you know, an eyewitness or hair comparison or the types of evidence that we now know is highly, highly unreliable based on the wrongful convictions that have come to light. And, uh, you know, people like Troy Davis, um, a lot of talk about whether he was an innocent person convicted. What we do know, though, is that guilty or innocent, he was convicted based on a couple of eyewitnesses, many of whom recanted. And we know how unreliable eyewitness memories. And there are tons of death sentences that turned into execution where the evidence was just that thin. And that's a, and that's a terrifying thought that, uh, that, that we just we can't know, we'll never know. But people have been executed in this country based on evidence now know to be quite unreliable. And you talk about eyewitness testimony, but in the book you also talk about confessions, and you just mentioned hair. Can you talk about some of the larger evidentiary questions that are faced in this area? Well, there's there's a real central problem in death penalty cases. You can only be sentenced to death for a murder. And you know, murders can be really hard to solve, especially because you know the, the person who saw what happened, unfortunately, may be the person who was murdered. And, you know, for some murderers, it's because of that, um, you know, murderers don't want anyone to be able to tell tales. And so the, the victim is killed. Um, but, you know, unless you see someone running with a gun or a knife away from the scene and there are eyewitnesses, you know, there are certainly some homicides where someone is caught in the act and there's not much question about guilt. There are plenty of cases like that. Plenty of murders are impulsive and uh, someone is caught in the act. The question is, you know, were they mentally ill? Why do they do it? But then there's this other group of murders where no one saw what happened. The only witness is the victim. And unless there's like DNA, there's forensics, it can be very hard to piece together what happened. That's why there's so many interrogations and confessions in murder cases. If the suspect isn't going to say it in his own words, you know, how are you going to figure out who did the murder? Because because the victim is the only one who could, who could say. And we've had a bunch of times where these confessions have ended up not being accurate, proven by evidence later. Yeah, so most of the DNA exonerates for, uh, from death row. Uh, had falsely confessed. And they were interrogated for hours upon hours upon hours. You know, police knew they're not going to be able to crack open this murder unless unless someone owns it with his own words. And, you know, a lot of these people were intellectually disabled, mentally ill, the types of people who'd be vulnerable to a lot of pressure. Some were juveniles. Two North Carolina cases of juveniles questioned for hours and hours and hours into the wee hours of the morning. And eventually they basically said, just tell us what to say. They were, you know, um, innocent people actually may be at higher risk of falsely confessing because they figure, come on, I'm innocent. They trust the system. They figure they, they'll they clear it up later. They'll get a lawyer. They'll, they'll clear it up later. They'll just go along with the, with the police or insisting that they say, I, I can't leave this interrogation. They're never going to let me leave unless I just sign this stupid piece of paper. So I'll sign it. And they don't realize that they've just signed their death warrant. This calls for a great deal of speculation, but I feel like I should follow up here. Uh, do you have any theories as to why uh, enforcement uh, prosecutors and enforcement agents seem to want the confession so much that uh, that they're willing to pressure people who are otherwise vulnerable uh, in this way? Well, uh, you know, traditionally police weren't trained on how to identify someone who's disabled or mentally. Uh, no training at all on that. And in fact, to this day, there aren't screening instruments or procedures in place in most departments to screen out people who'd be vulnerable in interrogation settings. Even for juveniles, uh, there's research that most police treat juveniles just like adults and use the same coercive interrogation techniques. Um, At best, maybe they'll notify a parent or guardian, but that actually can place more pressure on juveniles. You know, they're not that many, and it's only the most progressive agencies that really have policies geared towards Handling interrogation is different when someone is vulnerable. And we have jailhouse screeners designed to identify mental health needs of people in jail. Uh, you know, there have been horrible suicides in jail settings because it's such to be so damaging if someone has addiction issues or mental health issues. And so there's an effort to screen people. There isn't the same effort to screen people in the interrogation setting. But the other piece of it is that law enforcement have been trained on this technique that comes from the, the Reed Institute, this Reed method, which is highly, highly coercive. And for many decades now, Police departments have been told that's the way to do it. You need to be tough. You need to use psychological manipulation. That's the way you get the truth. You go in there. You take as long as it takes to get the truth by using these manipulative methods. Now we know that these methods can produce false confessions. And and now some of the leading police training organizations are turning away from that technique. Uh, The high-value detainees interrogation methods now being used by the federal government don't use those techniques. 
turns out you can actually get a lot of more information by just letting people talk and not by putting words in their mouths. But but for years and years, this is what police thought was the you know the, the right way to do it. You got to be tough. You got to be manipulative, and that way you can extract the truth. And now now we're we're learning what the horrible consequences of. Uh, another concern uh, that you read about is race. I say all the time that you would have to be willfully blind to walk into a jail, prison, or courthouse in the United States and not see the disparities. But it, this is true of executions, particularly in this country, yes? Yeah, so um, death sentences themselves are really racially disparate. And I talk about in the book how, how when you look at death sentencing rates, that the counties that are sentencing the most people to death in this country are the counties where there are more white victims of murder. And there's just no relationship between black homicide, black victim homicide rates, and death sentencing. And so uh, so that's that's really troubling. There's more racial fragmentation in the counties that reduce most of the death sentences. And then when you turn to, okay, it's already racially disparate what the, goes into who gets sentenced to death, but who gets executed. It's only a tiny percentage of people who get sentenced to death get executed. The executions are even more racially disparate, much more so. And, you know, there's some states like in Florida, it was big news last fall that someone who uh, was white and executed a black and Latino victim had actually been executed. It had been just decades since anyone could remember uh, that, where it was almost always black defendants where there was a white victim. Hmm. And so another one, I don't think you talked about this too much, maybe not at all in the book, but uh, that you read about right now a lot is the problem with uh, lethal injections. Uh, Jurisdictions are having a hard time procuring the drugs necessary to carry these out. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So I talk a little bit in the book about it. Just, you know, many people are on death row for years and years and years. Uh, Your chances of passing away through natural causes, suicide, health problems on death row are greater than being executed. And one source of those uh, delays uh, is the litigation that has led to many states um, shutting down executions, moratorium on executions. And, uh, and so for the people who support the death penalty but want the punishment to be swift and carried out within years, this is, this is one of the reasons why there's delay. It's not the only reason. Another reason is that to have the types of appeals and habeas to detect convictions, to detect errors, that takes time. Uh, But there's been litigation all around the country. And one problem has been that states want to keep how they do lethal injections secret. They have had trouble getting drugs because the drug makers don't want to be a part of this. And that secrecy, that lack of procedure, the experimenting with new drugs has made it ripe for litigation because someone who's going to be sentenced to death uh, and their lawyers, they want to know what, what is going to be done. How is this execution going to happen? Is it going to be horribly painful raising ethermint issues? What are you going to do to this person when you execute them? And states don't want to say. It's almost they've been, like they've been asking for a perfect storm of, of litigation over these untested drug uh, protocols and experimenting with. And sort of, I guess, the final uh, area you read about a lot in regards to the death penalty now is mental illness. You've talked about a little bit before. Uh, we know it's nearly impossible to be declared legally insane, but where does mental illness play into the larger problems that your book discusses? So mental illness is you know, incredibly important in criminal justice generally, uh, in local jails all across the country here in North Carolina, where I used to live in Virginia. It's common for as much of a third or more of any jail to include people who have mental health needs. Uh, in the death penalty context, from what we know, a huge proportion of people on death row have mental health needs. And of course, death row isn't a good place for one's mental health either. Uh, one reason we don't know how many people had mental health issues uh, at the time of the crime or at the time of the trial is that in the past, lawyers did a terrible job of bringing out this information in mitigation at death penalty trials. What we do know is that now it's, it's a focus and it takes experts to really look at someone and examine them. And... You know, in states like Virginia, where there there's an office with an expert network and the ability to raise mental health issues, you have juries hearing about that and realizing, oh, if this person if this person is disabled, if this person is mentally ill, um, you can't treat them the same as someone who was rational and cold and calculated and did the same thing. That is just it's not the worst of the worst if someone isn't in control of their faculties. You can't blame them for a sickness. In high profile cases where jurors have taken this type of evidence into account, but uh, you know, it's not like a, the, the prosecutors have access to this information. The only way it comes out is if 
the defense meets with their client and brings in doctors and finds out what what, what was happening. Yeah, and so it's more about mitigation than it is about exoneration, but it is having an effect. Uh, so you mention uh, all of these in the book, but your conclusion is that the major driver of reductions in the death penalty has been more effective defense. Uh, what changed... And could you eventually talk about what you refer to in the book as murder insurance? Yeah, so one of the analyses that I did was to look at, at the state level, which states saw a decline in death sentences more so than others. Now, all the death penalty states have had death sentences decline everywhere, whether it's Texas or Virginia or Georgia or North Carolina. All of the heartland death penalty states have many, many fewer death sentences today than they ever uh, but some of the states went down faster than others. And working with Ankur Desai and Alex Jacobo, uh, we co-authored a technical paper, which one could read uh, separate from the book if you want to see all the tables and everything. What we found was that even controlling for the decline in homicide rates, which also occurs around the country, but more so in some states than others and at different times, that it had a huge effect whether a state created an office to handle death penalty trials. And in some states like Virginia, it was an office that handles the trials from beginning to end if it's a death penalty case. Uh, some states like North Carolina, the office consults closely and provides resources, uh, but it's not quite as, as good as what Virginia has. And, uh, and then some states to this day don't have any office with people who know what to do in a death penalty defense. Florida is like that. They still have court-appointed lawyers uh, handling capital cases. And what we found was that there's just a huge impact of having an office and that it, you know, it means that you have lawyers that have training, that know how to get an expert. And they're not putting together a team fresh just because they got assigned yesterday by the judge. And all of a sudden, it could take a year to put together a team to handle a complicated case. If you have an office, it's actually a lot cheaper because you have you know a paralegal that already works for you. You don't have to hire all these people on the fly. Uh, so we found this, this, this defense lawyering effect. Uh, you mentioned merger insurance. So in in the rural counties in Texas, the counties have themselves banded together with some indigenous defense funding from the state to set up an office across counties. And, you know, one problem in our criminal justice system is that it's really fragmented and you have rural districts that really don't have the resources to do what you can do in a big city where you have big public defenders and big prosecutors. And so one way to handle that is to is to band together and kind of defragment the system. And that's what they did with uh, capital defense. You know, the counties or small counties are worried, judges were worried that they get bankrupted if they had a capital trial. And so this is like a insurance pooling scheme where if a death penalty case comes up, this office will handle it and all the counties chip in every year to, to help to pay for it. And, uh, you know, it doesn't sound an office with fancy resources, but you've seen death sentences dramatically decline across all the rural county Texas. And, uh, and those offices may have made a real difference. So there's a quote kind of mid to late in the book from uh, prosecutor Robert Morgenthau that, and he says that prosecutors must reveal the dirty little secret. They too often share only among themselves. The death penalty hinders the fight against crime. So what did he mean by that quote? Well, I think he meant, and you know, he, he was, you know, we hear about the prosecutors that are super gung ho about the death penalty and always seek it. Of course, even during the, the most tough on crime days of the eighties or nineties, you know, the vast, vast majority of prosecutors in this country never sought the death penalty, never, never tried to get the death penalty, even when they did absolutely have the types of murders that could have been eligible for it. And, you know, Morgenthau was an example of that. When New York brings back the death penalty, he's quite clear that he doesn't see the need for it. You know, murders were declining without the death penalty. You don't need it to deter. It's expensive. He thought it was a sideshow and it took resources away from the tough work that prosecutors have to do every day. And, uh, and that it wasn't worth the cost. Uh, and that's, you know, that's actually always been the view of the vast majority. What, what, one of the things I show in, in my book is that even at the height of the American death penalty in the 1990s, most death sentences were coming from a very small number of cases. And today, that's even more so. The death penalty has retreated uh, to, you know, just a dozen or so counties that regularly send someone to death. And then there are, you know, a handful of additional counties that every once in a while send someone to death, maybe once every few years. It's just a tiny number of places. We shouldn't even think about death penalty states anymore. It's just a few death penalty, a few district attorneys that still pursue the death penalty. And I think that's that says something about the power of local decision makers to impose huge costs on society. But that's not something that actually particularly helps criminal justice to, to have these kind of outlier punishments. 
Um, so what do you think about that notion of kind of punitive justice? I, you speak a lot in the book about mercy. Uh, how would you juxtapose those two concepts? Well, in, in, in a capital trial, what a prosecutor is saying is that the state wants justice and that the only way to get justice is to exact the ultimate punishment on someone who committed the worst crime imaginable. And what the defense lawyer says in response is that even for a horrific crime, uh, a terrible act is still committed by a person. And some of the worst acts, the most violent things are done by, by people who have had terrible things done to them. And that, you know, no one does something horrific unless, unless something is deeply wrong with them. And that is not their fault that this, you know, this defendant did not ask to be abused as a child. This defendant didn't ask to go through abusive child care, foster care. This defendant didn't ask to be mentally ill. No one asks for that. And so it really gets to the heart of what is the purpose of blame in a criminal justice system? And uh, the idea that there could be some something redemptive, even for murderers, uh, not something we really care to think about. In the 80s and 90s, it was like, you know, there's a terrible crime. Lock the person up as long as you possibly can. Maybe never let them out and definitely execute some of them. Uh, I think there's more of an understanding now that the vast majority of people caught up in the criminal justice system are caught up there because they are poor, because of mental illness, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and that many of these people can, in fact, be treated and be good citizens if their circumstances were slightly this kind of leads to one of the major premises I wanted to ask about. Uh, it seems like you're saying that the death penalty is a bellwether for uh, attitudes toward reform in general, that a reduction in the use of the death penalty could herald a wholesale change of approach in our system, a change like we were just talking about from punishment to mercy. Uh, but you also spend a decent amount of the time in the book talking about uh, alternative sentences like life without parole. Uh, we just saw the U.S. House of Representatives pass legislation widening what crimes are considered violent. Yeah. The DOJ fights back all the time vociferously against reducing mandatory minimums. Is it possible that instead of mercy, we are just seeing uh, retrenchment in a different way? Well, obviously, this is a complicated political moment in this country. And you know, the politics of crime and criminal justice are caught up in the middle of, of these different cross currents. Uh, on the one hand... Criminal justice reform has never been more important in the country. There's bipartisan work being done in southern states, northern states, red states, blue states to rethink harsh punishments. A lot of that has been most successful at the local level and at the state level. Um, the uh, flip side of that, though, is that you know we have death sentencing down to a record low. We haven't had death sentencing this low in 30 years. But life without parole sentencing is 10 times what it ever was before. It's at a record high. And, you know, murders continue to decline. There's no like crime control need to be sentencing this gigantic population of people to life without parole. We now have, you know, more than 50,000 people serving life without parole. That's 10 times bigger than death row ever was at its height in this country. And so, uh, you know, are, are we getting more punitive, but we're just sort of, there's just distaste for the death penalty, but there's still a great taste for long periods of incarceration. Or are things really moving in another direction where you have entire states focusing on decarceration, community-based approaches towards punishment, treatment, and not just punishment? We're seeing movement in both directions, uh, but certainly you know, we're seeing exactly the same tough-on-crime talk that we heard in the 1980s from the Department of Justice, from Jeff Sessions, who you know, unapologetically wants to return us to that era. And at the same time, at the state and local level, we're hearing all types of prosecutors, judges, uh, lawmakers saying that, that tough on crime is broken. We need to be smart on crime. We need to rely less on incarceration. So I think we're really at a crossroads. And that's that's what makes it especially important that, that people get involved in these debates. Well, but you seem to come out on the side that we're definitely in a moment where we're heading toward uh, a new era and a sense of mercy. What, what, what gives you your optimism, I guess? One piece of optimism is that uh, crime rates continue to decline. It makes it clear to people that even in the states that have done the most to reduce incarceration, we continue to see these crime declines. And so, you know, crime rates are their own phenomena. We don't know exactly why they go up and down, but certainly mass incarceration didn't, didn't um, solve our crime problem and it's not going to continue to do so. I think that helps. I think some of the budgetary constraints 
help that people realize just how expensive it is to over rely on incarceration. I continue to be optimistic because of the, I mean, it's not a happy topic, but the opioid crisis and the increased public understanding that, that we have a, an addiction crisis in this country. And it's not just opioids, it's combinations of drugs, that jail is not a way to treat substance abuse problems. I just think from that uh, criminal justice used to be a one note, tough on crime conversation where politicians on both parties would run against each other to show how punitive they were. And that is largely absent, except maybe at the federal level. And so I, I think there really is a space for people to work together to do research and to change policy. And we haven't had that space in decades. I think it's a really, really exciting time right now. How far it goes, I think, and how hard people work, and, uh, and maybe uh, on some degree of luck. So, uh, you know, one thing I like to talk about a lot is the problem of violence. You said in the book that we can't solve the problem of mass incarceration just by focusing on low-level and nonviolent criminals. Uh, but still, despite this, in most instances, that's still what new criminal justice legislation does. Can you talk a little bit about this and what you think we can do to change this narrative? Well, it's uh, there's this larger question about how, how do you even define what is a violent criminal? Um, what is a crime of violence? There are all sorts of behaviors that aren't, you know, serious, involve serious future danger, serious harm to society that nevertheless get characterized as violent. Um, we have better data now about how to predict uh, future violent behavior, although there's lots of debate about use of risk assessment to divert offenders. Uh, but what I think these death penalty cases highlight is that uh, it's very hard to define the worst of the worst, that some of the people who do the things that I think are archetypal violent acts, the worst violent acts, the worst murders, are in fact not the most blameworthy people. Maybe some of the most mentally ill people who are released in control of their own actions, most in need of treatment and not punishment. We are only beginning to learn about whether the types of things that we do to uh, you know, lower level violent offenders in terms of pretrial detention without bail uh, or incarceration in prison, whether those are exactly the kind of things that create violent behavior. Uh, making a murderer was about a you know case involving DNA and confessions and things, but there's this question, are we making murderers? Are we engendering violence by putting people in an environment which you know, we certainly wouldn't wish on ourselves? And so uh, you know, I, I, I think that we we're going to have to focus on the long, long sentences that we have, offenses that are now labeled violent, which wouldn't have been called that. That's the only way to change incarceration rates. And some states have started to move in that direction. You know, we've had California releasing thousands of lifers who are sentenced for murder, and they've had almost no recidivism. And I think the experiments like that show that you can think differently about even most serious offenses. And uh, you make some other suggestions for reforms from eyewitness testimony to rehabilitation. Would you like to talk any more about any of those? Well, some some reforms like on the eyewitness front or confessions or forensics have to do with having really accurate evidence. If we're going to convict people, we want to make sure we're not convicting innocent people. So that's one problem. We certainly want to make sure we're getting it right if we're imposing serious sentences or any kind of sentence on someone. And, you know, we spent a lot of money on prison building in this country. We haven't spent a fraction of it to make sure lineups are done right, or to make sure that interrogations are videotaped so that we can see if someone's being fed the facts in a false confession type situation. So that's a big problem. Uh, rehabilitation also costs money. You need to have treatment. You need to test it and make sure that it works. Uh, one thing we hear from you know rural parts of, of Virginia, where I used to live, North Carolina now, is that they just don't have the resources to have a mental health court. You need to hire people. You just, they just don't have the treatment resources to release low-level offenders. Even if judges are allowed to, they just say, you know, uh, I can't just let someone go entirely. There has to be some supervision, some treatment, and we just don't have it. But when they've done cost studies, what they show is that it's just a lot expense, less expensive than jail. Jail is enormously expensive. Prison even more so. You know, we're spending the kind of money you spend to send someone to college to keep people in jail or prison. And so... It, it, it just makes no sense that we're not spending money on treatments that that can work, and you need to evaluate them and make sure that they do work. But you have judges, you have prosecutors that are desperate to do something aside from incarceration, and they're not allowed to do it, even though it would cost less money. And I think uh, you know an argument that both you and John Pfaff make is that counties are able to pass on the cost of incarceration 
uh, prosecutors are able to pass on the cost of incarceration to states and the federal government. Uh, and you, it seemed like you had a solution for that, too. Well, one thing that California did in its whole realignment movement, uh, in part because of a federal lawsuit and the Supreme Court decision, uh, the Plata decision, uh, was that they said, you know, counties are going to have to pay more of the cost of, of imprisonment. The state, state of California isn't going to pay for it anymore. And if you want to um, you want to fill up the prisons? Too bad. You're going to have to fill up your own jails and pay for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, keeping costs at the local level means that prosecutors have to think about it when they decide to hold someone in pretrial detention for eight months rather than negotiate a plea or release the person. That said, you know, one of the themes in Fastbook, for example, was, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on the federal government, tiny number of prisoners are in full custody. State jails also get an enormous amount of money from federal subsidies paid for uh, their holding of federal prisoners or federal immigration detainees. And so with everything that's happening in terms of immigration enforcement in this country, that's another source of revenue at the local level to expand jails. And so there are, there are all sorts of distorting effects that, uh, that federal policy has. You know, a lot of states are suspending driver's licenses uh, for certain crimes, sometimes automatically, which has terrible collateral consequences. But in the 90s, federal legislation said you're going to lose federal funding if you don't if you don't suspend people's driver's licenses for all kinds of drug crimes. And so you know, the federal system does really have a distorting effect. That's why it's going to be really important that states don't follow the lead of some of this you know, tough on crime rhetoric coming in. We definitely agree there. Uh, my last two questions are always the same. Uh, what did I mess up? And what questions, uh, what questions should I have asked is the first one. Well, I don't know what questions you should have asked. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, it's a, uh, um, it's the end of September now. You know, the year is is almost up. Later this fall, we'll see what the death sentencing numbers look like for this year. Last year, they were a little bit up. Uh, they went from you know twenty nine to two thousand sixteen to forty in two thousand seventeen. Forty death sentences is still just a tiny, tiny fraction of the three hundred fifty or more that you'd see in any given year in the night. But some have wondered whether this kind of the tough on crime talk from the you know, the Trump administration is going to embolden prosecutors to seek the death penalty more. I'm not sure that'll happen. A lot of the counties that used to be the, the main death penalty counties in the country, like Philadelphia, like Harris County, Texas, and Houston, have elected prosecutors that ran for office saying, I'm not going to do the death penalty. I don't see the point. And so you talk about change at the local level having a huge impact. The main death penalty counties in the country, many of them have turned over. And so I suspect that this trend away from the death penalty is going to deepen. But whether that also translates into those prosecutors looking at other reforms, and some of them have you know, talked about aggressive reforms to change the way we do bail, to change detention, to change the way we think about long, long sentences for, for minor, even for medium and serious crimes. There's a movement to change the prosecution function in this country, and I think it's going to de- and we're going to see more and more change at the, at the most local level, the level of district attorneys, judges, people running for office to be judges, uh, what public defenders are doing in terms of changing their, their focus. So I, I, I really see the change deepening, and I, and I hope that's, that it's right to be optimistic. And uh, the last question I always ask is, is there anything you'd like to ask me? <laughs> uh, yeah, so your, your podcast is called Decarceration Nation. Uh, is that the theme of all of your po- podcasts? Is the, the theme uh, of, the, of the whole podcast, uh, how do we think about incarceration in this country? Yeah, uh, you know, basically the idea and the, the tagline I made up a long time ago was that the podcast is about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system, uh, not really because I'm necessarily uh, would normally be called a radical as much as that it, there's so much wrong with the system that it needs a radically reimagine. It needs someone to radically reimagine it. And, you know, I went through the system. Uh, as a pretty privileged person with a lot of education. And just in the time that I was there, I saw so many things that were just unbelievable. I'm not talking about things that just happened to me. I'm talking about things that I saw happening to people all around me, you know, from seeing, you know, like I think you even mentioned something about this in the book, about being uh, looking at a docket and seeing public defenders defend 30 people in one day. You know, I mean, just crazy, you know, things that I never would have suspected. So I think uh, just going through that myself, uh, it really opened my eyes and really gave me kind of a new focus for how I wanted to kind of approach uh, the rest of my life and kind of like what I was trying to do with myself. That answered your question. but <laughs> That makes sense. 
Uh, and you know, you can only call something decarceration nation if you, if there's a national conversation about about decarceration and what is it good for. And we really are in a moment like that, which is a big change. It's exciting. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I'm actually uh, you know, I kind of have to be. You know, I think it's important as an interviewer to ask some of those questions that push you a little bit, but I'm very optimistic too. Uh, you know, I mean, I think two things really stood out to me when I started. The first one was uh, the Rudman st- study that suggests that uh, the really large meta-analysis that suggests that even accounting for incapacitation, prisons and jails don't really make us more safe. Uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of really moved me in a decarceration you know, direction, I think, to start with. And then just so many people are doing uh, great work in this area now. So, you know, I, I'm optimistic, too, even if I asked a couple of questions that made me seem pessimistic. <laughs> well, I think, you know, lots of people are pessimistic. And, you know, it's, it's rational to be pessimistic because America has led the, the world in terms of reliance on the death penalty, harsh punishment, long, long sentence of incarceration. You know, why would you think that that could ever change? It's been so many decades in the making. You know, it's, I think it's appropriate to be, to be cautious about whether or not. So uh, I'm going to break the wall for just a second. I'll edit this out. But after I say goodbye in a second, which is the next thing I'm going to do, stay on the line for just a second. So make sure that I get the download part done, okay, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going back to the interview. Okay. Uh, so anyway, thank you so much for doing this. I uh, really enjoyed the book, and I'm uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Well, th- thank you so much, for Josh, for, for having me on Decarceration Nation. It was a real pleasure. Great. I hope to talk to you again soon. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Now my take. Thanks so much to Brandon Garrett for discussing his book, End of Its Rope, How Killing the Death Penalty Can Revive Criminal Justice. I feel like we had so much ground to cover that we didn't talk about the section of the book covering solutions enough. So I'm going to do that a little bit here. I don't think his point is that there is a a causal relationship between ending the death penalty and fixing our criminal justice system. As much as he is suggesting that if we truly embrace reform of the death penalty, we will have done much of the moral heavy lifting necessary to foregound the change of our entire criminal justice system. We'll have thought through it so much that it'll be impossible for us to continue to do the same counterproductive things that we've been doing for decades. Uh, Like so many of the authors who have influenced my thinking, from Bruce Western to John Fath to James Foreman Jr., Brandon starts by suggesting that this change will force us to come to better conclusions about the problem of violence. As he puts it, we cannot undo mass incarceration just by focusing on low-level and nonviolent offenders, although that is one starting point. We have to embrace mercy for the most serious offenses. We have to be willing to shorten prison terms and release convicts. In short, we have to focus on rehabilitation and mercy. We must rethink how we treat mentally ill, poor, innocent, and poorly represented defendants generally. We can all share the responsibility and the credit for moving past the most punitive era in American history. Amen, amen, and amen. I believe deeply that if we don't address the problem of violence, we can never solve mass incarceration. Next, Mr. Garrett suggests preventing wrongful convictions. I have largely shied away from the innocence problem because my goal has been to create better outcomes for the people who are guilty. And this is partially because I know that there are so many people, so many people much more qualified than me, working on exoneration. In other words, I know that there's a large community working on innocence, and so I'm trying to put my time in working on guilt, if that makes sense. That said, what Mr. Garrett is arguing is that fixing wrongful convictions would require changes in the ways that we evaluate evidence, eyewitness testimony, and DNA evidence, and that these changes should trickle down and eventually change the game for everyone throughout the system. Another great suggestion he makes is based on the team defense approach taken to the death penalty in many states now. The suggestion here is that when you spread the cost of defense across a team and, and, and counties, you know, counties contribute across uh, a state, that those teams will often work to ensure not only that less convictions occur, 
but also to ensure that very few cases end with incarceration. These teams involve investigators, social workers, and other stakeholders and attorneys working together to get better outcomes. To ensure good work is done requires a team approach and attorneys who go beyond the case to concern themselves with good outcomes around everything from parole to housing to employment. I know, for instance, that my personal attorney promised he would be there when parole came around, only when my parole came up, he told my parents, he doesn't do that kind of work. Well, I mean, this is pretty typical. I've heard this from several other people too. We need to have approaches that take the entire, uh, every part of the process of our criminal justice system and after our criminal justice system into account if we want better outcomes. Uh, the incredible advantages and resources that prosecutors enjoy and the incredible caseloads that public defenders carry make what often comes out of our system look like anything but justice, if you, if you take the time to dig a little deeper. It's time to change this game entirely, as Mr. Garrett puts it. Really top-notch public defenders have pioneered a holistic model using a team approach, much like in death penalty cases. They do not just defend accused criminals, but also try to help them with social services, such as welfare and counseling. They try to get their clients' lives back on track, and they negotiate the complex collateral consequences of convictions that can make it hard to work, obtain housing, and maintain a family. When we treat social problems with prison time, it then becomes the responsibility of criminal lawyers to provide social services. If we expand social services, we can make mercy a larger part of society, not just an afterthought of the criminal system. Wow. Such a powerful and necessary alternative to business as usual. We also have talked many times here about the need to rethink prosecution. Most importantly, the need to change plea bargaining, especially regard with uh, to long sentences in life without parole cases. Mr. Garrett put it like this, How can an agreement under the threat of death be a voluntary deal? It may save the cost of a trial, but it also encourages shoddy, coercive, machine-like handling of people's cases. What is voluntary about plea bargaining? In addition, as I have called for many times, we need to open the black box of prosecutorial discretion. Way too much information remains in the dark. Way too many choices that prosecutors make, we can never know about or why they make those choices or to see the data about the outcome of those choices. We really need to stop allowing prosecutors to control all of the flow of information about our criminal justice system. They have the most power and the least accountability. I agree with Mr. Garrett that we need to invest in rehabilitation and creating hope for a better future in people's and our people coming out of our prisons and jails. We need to invest deeply in removing barriers to reentry, restoring voting rights, and creating systems that deal with ongoing mental health problems and problems with addiction. And let me take just one second here to talk about what's going on in Florida. There is a ballot initiative in Florida that is going to create voting rights for, you know, I think it's a million four uh, formerly incarcerated people. And because I want every one of those people to have the right to vote, I basically support that deal. But at the same time, I have some deep concerns because like so much criminal justice reform legislation, this bill has carve-outs and it prevents people with certain violent crimes and people with sex crimes from getting the franchise back. If you have served your time, if you, you have paid your debt to society, and it is important that nobody, in fact, our country in many ways was founded on the principle that there should not be taxation without representation. When you come out of prison and decisions can be made about your life that you have no voice in, that is taxation without representation. Liberty requires that we fight even in the case of people that we are the most afraid of for their basic constitutional rights. People should have the right to vote. Uh, if we don't give people the right to vote, they don't have a say in what happens to them. That means they're not really free and they're not really living in a free society. So while I support, I think it's called uh, item, a ballot 
initiative four on the Florida ballot. I also have some deep concerns about the way that it is being moved forward. And my hope is that if we continue to bring attention to the carve-outs, that as people who are formerly incarcerated get the right to vote, they will start to vote to expand the franchise to everyone coming out of prison. Anyway, back to the solutions that Mr. Garrett has been arguing for. We definitely, and he kind of comes, the last several areas in his book uh, talk about our need to focus on the data. We need to clap back at legislators and prosecutors who continue in the face of massive amounts of evidence to insist that criminal justice will ref- reform will cause American carnage. This nonsense needs to stop. This is just security theater. We've had reform in over 30 states and crime rates continue, as the recently released Uniform Crime Report proved, to be going down. We know tough-on-crime causes mass incarceration and that everything from prisons and jails to mandatory minimums and criminal justice debt make the problem worse, not better. In other words, we know that the relationship between tough-on-crime and crime reduction is weak, while the relationship between criminal justice reform and better outcomes is strong. It is time for us to be smart, smart on crime. Time for us to stop falling for scare tactics in the face of massive data, which proves the brutal emperor of the criminal justice empire wears no clothes. Anyway, Brandon Garrett wrote a really interesting book. It's time we end the death penalty and also carry everything we learned from that experience into our criminal justice reform efforts across the board. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.